Hi, everyone. I'm Father Graby, and this is the Breakfast Podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk about the Roman Forum and a world in ruin. During the years I was studying in Rome, I lived just a short walk from the Roman Forum. There was a spot on a nearby hill that offered a bird's eye view. You could see from one end to the other. Sometimes I'd go by in the early morning and catch the sunrise at just the right moment. The whole place looked on fire, just postcard perfect. At first glance though, it's not much to see. It's all in ruins. Fallen columns, ancient archways, the footprint of buildings long gone. When I would take visitors up there, I told them they had to use their imagination to picture this area in its heyday. This was the center of the known world, the engine of an empire that stretched from the Irish Sea to the Persian Gulf. It was the center of government, of finance and trade, of entertainment and public events. It would be like having Times Square, Wall Street, and Capitol Hill all in one place. Picture a visitor from a rural town in some remote province who comes to Rome for the first time. Keep in mind, he never would have seen even a photograph of it. It would be unlike anything he ever dreamed possible. Buildings that seemed to touch the sky, covered in marble and adorned in gold, on such a scale that he must have just stared in wonder. The power of the empire would have been palpable. It looked like it would last forever. But of course, it didn't. If you told that visitor that one day this forum would be nothing but a heap of ruins, a museum of the ancient past, he would have been incredulous. How could Rome ever fall? And yet it did. And so will all worldly powers. Take the government equivalent in any capital city, the Mall in Washington, Whitehall in London, the Kremlin in Moscow. One day, perhaps a thousand years from now, they too will be a heap of rubble because nothing in this world lasts forever. And that all might sound rather depressing, but I think it is, and ought to be, hopeful. We live in an age marked by incredible division, fear, anxiety, with enormous problems plaguing our nation, our world, our church. Now, in one sense, that's nothing new. After all, we live in a fallen world, and political and church leaders are fallen individuals. Someone once observed that the first united act of the apostles was abandoning our Lord in the garden. It's easy to romanticize the past, to look back at it through a gauzy distance and think how much simpler and more tranquil life must have been back then. Their problems and challenges may have been different from ours, but they sure had them. I remember the Woody Allen movie, Midnight in Paris. The main character is an American visiting Paris. But what he really wants to experience is Paris in the 1920s, to him the city's golden age. One night a car pulls up and takes him there, back in time to the lost generation. He meets Hemingway and Fitzgerald, Picasso and Gertrude Stein. One of the young women he encounters, though, is herself longing to go back to what she considers the golden age, the Belle Epoque of the late 19th century. So much was new and exciting. Impressionism and Art Nouveau, the Eiffel Tower, and the Opera House. The point, of course, is that the grass is always greener, and our nostalgia can be quite selective. What is different about our own age, though, 
is not that there is so much more wrong with the world, but that we're constantly reminded of that fact. Up until pretty recently, news was hard to come by. You might hear of some major tragedy, an earthquake or an assassination, weeks after it happened. Unless it somehow affected your daily life, the way a war does, for example, you'd hear the news and say, what a shame, and get back to your routine. We don't have that luxury anymore. The news is in our face all the time. An older gentleman recently told me, almost at the point of tears, how depressed and angry he gets watching the news all day. How this country's going to pieces, and this one and that one are to blame, and it gets him so upset, and what should he do about it? I answered, turn off the TV. He looked at me. I said, we know the world's a mess. It always has been and always will be. And there's nothing that you and I can do to change that, at least not in any large or meaningful way. So give it to God, because it's all in his hands anyway. To borrow from Dale Carnegie, stop worrying and start living. It reminds me of a story told about Pope St. John XXIII, who, like any pope, faced the daily cares and anxieties that come with such an enormous responsibility. He's said to have gone to bed at night and prayed, Well, Lord, it's your church. You take care of it. I'm going to sleep. It sounds like a charming anecdote of childlike trust. But it carries a deep truth and speaks to what we call providence. Providence comes from a Latin word that basically means looking out for you. God doesn't just create us. He sustains and guides and cares for everything he has made. One of the errors opposed to providence is deism. That's the divine watchmaker theory, that God winds up the clock and then walks away. But that's not how it works at all. To put it bluntly, God isn't a deadbeat dad. He's guiding, not controlling, but guiding everything to cooperate with his loving plan. From the smallest trivial worry you might have to the rise and fall of empires, he knows about it, he cares about it, He's looking out for it. No care is too small for him, and he's never too busy. He's God. Jesus tells us the very hairs on our head are numbered. He knows us that well. He loves us that much. It doesn't mean everything is going to go the way we want it to, or that we understand why certain things happen. Especially when it comes to pain and suffering, it can be difficult to trust that he's in charge or that he cares. And we'll talk about that more in another episode. It does mean that God is not indifferent to what's going on. He cares about it all because he cares about you. And even when we mess it up or when things go wrong, he's still in charge and he's guiding everything towards some greater good. Look at the fall of man. God created this earthly paradise, endowed man with so many gifts, and all he had to do was play by the rules. The sin wasn't eating the fruit. It was the pride and disobedience behind it. Man thought he knew better and had to learn the hard way. Suddenly, it seemed like everything was lost. Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden with pain and suffering and death now part of the human experience. But their sin was no match for God's providence. He had something even greater in mind. He sent his son, God the Son, to take on our human nature, to pay the price for our sins and reconcile us to God. We're not just back to where Adam and Eve had been. We can be closer to God now, through Jesus, than Adam and Eve ever could have. 
That's why we call their sin a happy fault. Through it, God brought about something far better. As St. Paul says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. We might also think of Good Friday. The disciples had left everything and followed Jesus. They were all in and had spent three years in his company, traveling with him, learning from him, and now he's dead and buried. There must have been this incredible sadness and maybe even some buyer's remorse. They must have asked themselves, what were we thinking? What now? None of them could have foreseen what was going to happen on Sunday morning, that the whole world was about to change. Perhaps you've had an experience like that in your own life, where something that seemed like a major setback or defeat, maybe a lost job or romance, at the time it seemed like the world was over, but it opened the door to something even better than you originally wanted. Perhaps it's only in the next life that we'll see how it makes sense, how God used it for some greater good entirely unknown to us. That's what we have to hold on to. We can't skip ahead to the last page of the book. We're in the middle of it. But we know how the story ends. We know who wins, who gets the last word. And when we understand who's ultimately in charge, it changes the way we approach the things going on around us. We sometimes think that the answer to whatever's wrong with the world is just an election away. If we just elect this person or political party, or if the Supreme Court rules this way or that, or if such and such were legalized or illegalized, then we'd be all set. But that's short-sighted. Of course, we should work for justice and use whatever means are available to us to further that end. But we have to remember that even if we got everything we wanted, all the right rulers and rulings, we'd still have problems, just different ones, because we're still fallen creatures. We're still inclined to sin and selfishness. One of the Psalms reminds us, put no trust in princes, in mortal man in whom there is no help. Things will never be perfectly right in this world. That's not to be pessimistic, but realistic. The word utopia, often used to name the perfect place, means nowhere. When we put world events in a broader cosmic perspective, it helps us weather the storms. When the Roman Empire collapsed, it seemed like the end of the world. The empire had given cohesion and protection to so many for almost a thousand years. What happens now? That turmoil and uncertainty prompted St. Augustine to write his masterpiece, City of God. In it, Augustine distinguishes between the city of God, our true home in heaven, and the city of man, marked by change and decay. We're just passing through the city of man, on our way to the city of God, and we can't mistake the journey for the destination. As it says in the letter to the Hebrews, we have here no lasting city. So where does that leave us? We can waste time looking back at a world long gone. We can waste time worrying about the world as it is and never was. And we can change none of it. What we can change is ourselves. To do some good, insignificant in global affairs, but loved by God, who will use it in ways we can hardly realize. That simple prayer we say, God may use that to give someone about to die the grace to make an act of contrition and save his soul. That penance we offer up or that good work we perform there may be some teenager in some faraway city who's about to try drugs for the first time 
which will ruin the rest of his life. And God uses your gift to supply him the grace to walk away. That's how he works. No gift is too small. A few loaves feed thousands. Mere water becomes wine. Mere wine becomes his very blood. He's always taking the humble gifts we give him and elevating them, transforming them, and returning them to us a hundredfold. That's what we hold on to, making sure our own souls stand strong, that we don't allow it to decay or be defaced. The forum might be nothing but a faint reminder of long-faded glory, a field of stones that only whispers the empire that once was. But Rome still stands. Life went on. Through emperors and popes and kings and presidents, the city has survived. So much so that it's called the Eternal City. But it's not eternal, is it? Like everything else in the world, it will come to an end. Heaven. That's the true Eternal City. Whatever happens all around us, if we keep our eyes on God, He'll make sure we get there. After all, He's looking out for us. And no matter how far we wander, He's always there to bring us home.